Father, we thank you for how you love us, how you are rich in mercy. Let us never grow weary in just remembering how you have saved us by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. This morning, help us with a topic that is confusing, especially today. Uh, it is a source of pain, perhaps, for others. Uh, so, Father, would you comfort us by your word? Would you glorify yourself? Draw us near to you and give us hope. Uh, just do all the, the things that you do when people gather in your name and commit themselves to prayer and your word. We love you and we thank you for how you love us. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Well, you can probably hear the kids back there, and we got a number of them. And those of you that have kids or work with kids, you know that teaching your kids is very hard. If you're a parent, you'll find yourself saying things you never imagined you would ever say. Things come out of your mouth, and as soon as they come out of your mouth, you're thinking, what, 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 what does my life come to that I'm having to say things like this? Terry keeps a journal of all of those things. And here's some of, the, some of our favorites. Uh, we have literally had to tell our kids to stop licking the toilet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, one day, one of our kids is running through the house, and, and uh, I go, it's not Bitsy Bitsy, it's Itsy Bitsy Spider. <laughs> Why I cared to point that out, I don't know. We've had to say, stop asking your sister to wipe your butt. Don't pee on the dog. And stop putting Spider-Man in his butt. Yeah, you don't ever want to come over to our house. We got five little ones, and it's crazy. So I mean, raising kids is 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 just challenging, and uh, it's hard to teach them too. One of the the challenge. Right, let me just ask you this question: When your son or daughter asks you, "What's it mean to be a boy or a girl?" How are you going to answer that? How are you going to answer that today? If I were to put you on the spot and say, "What does it mean to be a woman?" What is a woman? What is a man? How are you going to answer that? Because right, we're, we're living in a time where society is teaching us that there is no meaningful difference between men and women, that gender is nothing more than a social construct, and it's a weapon used by a patriarchal society to oppress people. Are they right? Interesting, there was, um, I think it was Will Witt for Prager University. He went to uh, the Women's March. I forget exactly what the nature of the event was. But he was going around and he was asking a simple question at this women's rights march. What is a woman? What does it mean to be a woman? Very simple question, right? And it was profound how no answers were able to be given. And it's challenging, right? I mean, literally, if someone put a microphone in your face with a camera on the spot, asks you to define what a woman is, you'd probably be scared to do it even if you had an idea of what to say. But it's likely that you are as confused because of the time that we're living in as anyone else. So how are we to think about gender and what it means to be a man and a woman? There are some that would say that the gospel erases all gender distinctions. There are many today that are insisting that uh, gender and the social construct and the idea that men and women are somehow different is a result of the fall. But now in Christ, all of that is done away from. And they will, this is where, uh, if you have your Bibles open, you can turn to, to Galatians chapter 3. And many will look at verse, 
uh, where is it? Verse 28, and they'll say, look, this is how the gospel changes the way that we're to view gender. Uh, they'll read verse 28 in Galatians chapter 3 that says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so there are many today with a progressive uh, theology that will say, look, see, even there, that's what Paul is saying. That the tensions between men and women and the gender distinctions that have arisen throughout time are nothing more than a cultural construction that is driven by a fallen world. It's wrong, and in Christ, this is restored. See what Paul is saying? There is no male or female. We're all one in Christ. There is no meaningful difference between men and women. Is that what the Apostle Paul is saying, though? Well, it's not. And if you just practice simple, basic good Bible reading, you'll be able to understand what the Apostle Paul means here, even if you've not gone to seminary. Let's do that together. Let's just back up a couple verses and read a couple more verses, and I think you'll see what the point Paul is making. Let's begin just reading in verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And he's talking about the law there. And this is a point, if you have a question about what Paul's talking about here, just put a pin in it. You can ask me later. We can talk about it later. But you'll be able to get the other point that Paul's making here. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, another good habit in Bible reading is don't automatically stop because you're at the end of a chapter. Because Paul's argument continues here, or the point that he's making continues. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What is the large point Paul is trying to make here? Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us uh, by his death and the resurrection on the cross... We all are able to be what into his family? Adopted into his family. And if we are adopted and sons, then we are a what? An heir. We inherit all of the blessings and all of the inheritance that comes with belonging to God's family. This is the good news of the gospel. You're not just saved from hell. 
You are brought into God's family. You are given the spirit. You have access to God in everything that comes with this. All of the inheritance of God's children come to you. But what if you're a slave? Do you still get the same rights? What if you're not a Jew? What if you're a Greek? Are you still an heir? Because an heir and inheritance really only comes to the son in the family. What if you're a woman? Do you still have equal access to the benefits? That's Paul's point. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. All of us have equal access to the Father and all of the blessings and the inheritance that comes from belonging to his family. That is the singular, grand, and amazing point that Paul is making. He's not erasing gender distinctions. He is simply saying that your social status has no bearing on your right to inherit, to receive the inheritance as belonging to God's family. The Bible meaningfully shows, and we'll look now at Genesis, that God created men and women in his image and our sexuality is part of his design, and it was good. Turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to do the same, so if it takes you a minute, that's fine. It'll take me, well, I'm already there, sorry. And the reason we're turning to Genesis 2, uh, when does the Bible record the fall of man? What chapter of the Bible? Genesis chapter 3. So what we're about to read here is significant because for those that say that gender and the distinctions are a result of the fall, fail to see God's design for men and women in Genesis 2, which obviously comes before the fall. In Genesis 1, just for a little bit of context, we read how God made man and woman in his image. The biblical doctrine of imago Dei or being made in God's image is a bit ambiguous. The Bible does not explain it in full detail. But its significance is to show that our worth and our value is rooted in our nature, the kind of thing we are. Not the things we will do, not what we will become, not the characteristics we possess, not our intelligence, not our humor, not anything else. Our value is fixed in that we are made in God's image. And men and women are equally made in God's image. Therefore, men and women both share equal value and dignity. And all people share the same value and dignity because all are made in God's image. Now, Genesis chapter 2 is kind of a zoomed-in view of creation. Genesis 1 kind of gives you the big picture for the creation account. Genesis 2 zooms in particularly on the creation of man and woman. Now let's read this together beginning in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now the creation of man is very distinct from the rest of creation in what way? When God created everything else, how did he do so? He spoke. He said, let there be, and there was. 
Now, with man, the Bible shows us the uh, intimate, if you will, the special act of creation where God forms man, forms man from the dust and breathes life into him. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and it became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Medellium and Onk stone are there. The name of the second river, river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Interesting, again, God made Adam, put him in the garden to work it and keep it. This, again, takes place before what? The fall. And if you were here yesterday, you heard Dr. Jeff Myers talk about how work is good. It's not a punishment. Now, it may feel like that today, depending on where you work, or certainly as a result of the fall, working can be hard and toilsome and not free and, and liberating like intended. But God created paradise, and in paradise there was work. Anyhow, that's a side note for, for today. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called, and, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God puts Adam in the garden to work, but there's an issue. It's not good for Adam to be alone. Now, if you're reading this with an understanding of God and his nature, that, that he is an all-perfect being, he's morally perfect. From a knowledge standpoint, he is perfect. From a power standpoint, he is perfect. He can do anything, and he will always do it right. Did he make a mistake here in the creation? He makes Adam, and everything's made, 
but it's not good for that Adam is alone. Now, an important thing to note here, based on this context, what, what's being said is, is what's being said that Adam was lonely, like emotionally unsatisfied. That's not what he's saying. In fact, the Hebrew word used for alone there is never used in the Old Testament to convey a sense of lonely. Remember, Adam is in fellowship with God in a perfect way. He is not lacking in terms of emotional satisfaction. And moreover, to say that, what we would be saying to single people all throughout life is that you're not complete unless you're married. And that's not the case. Emotional fulfillment and satisfaction is not only possible because you're in a romantic relationship. That is false. That is a lie that society is feeding you. Now, romantic uh, love and that kind of fulfillment is a very good thing. But you are not deprived if you don't have it. Fulfillment in life, in other words, is not to be reduced simply to romantic fulfillment. So when it's, we read here that it's not good that Adam was alone, what's the context here? What had Adam been charged to do? Take care of this creation. Steward it. So it's not good that he's alone in this task. So, and to make even Adam aware of this, he gives him this process where he's naming animals. And he's, one of the things he's recognizing is, they are not like me. These animals are very different from me. There's none of these things that are suitable to help me in the task that God has given me to have dominion over this creation. So God, in another, a second and different special act of creation, forms woman but this time not from the dust, from man. Helping even in this process Adam to know Eve, woman, is like me but yet still different from me. And his reaction to this is poetry. At last, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And this is also the basis for, for marriage. This is what Jesus quotes, by the way, in Matthew 19 when asked a question on marriage. He roots God's design for marriage in, in Genesis 2. But here's some of the things to, to, to take away from this. How many of you have the NIV reading out of the NIV version? That's perfectly fine. That's what I grew up on. And as it relates to translations, most modern translations are all really good. There's just some differences about them. How does, what does the NIV say that there was no what found for Adam? What's the phrase? Suitable helper. Do you feel respected, women, with that phrase? Suitable helper. So God created a suitable helper. <laughs> what does that make you feel like? Ain't good enough. Isn't that the English rendering of that in the NIV? Doesn't that convey that kind of, all right, Adam, you've been given this really good job. No one's able to help you. I'm going to give you a suitable helper. <laughs> it, it, uh, I get it. I mean, in, in English, it, kinda, it has that kind of just good enough feeling. That, and that's um, unfortunate that the Hebrew doesn't communicate a suitable helper kind of thing. And, and fair enough, the word suitable doesn't really mean that. But just in English, in our time, it just feels like that, doesn't it? Well, the suitable helper is from a Hebrew phrase, eitzar kenegdo. 
Konegdo uh, is, uh, it means counterpart. That's a better word. It means opposite, distinct, apart from. Um, and, and really, so counterpart is the best idea. Similar yet different, but up to the task. Counterpart, not suitable. That's Konegdo is, is, is counterpart. Azar does mean helper. That's the, that's the right translation for that. But in the Old Testament, do you know where the word Azar comes almost exclusively? In reference to God. It's used of God a number of times, especially in Psalms. Let me just read for you a couple of them. Psalms 33.20 says this. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 74 through 5 says this. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help. You are my Azar. You are my deliverer. Do not delay. O Lord, do not delay. Psalm 121, 1 and 2 says this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The phrase Azar Konegdo conveys that God made for Adam one who is similar but different, a worthy counterpart who is able to help and provide the necessary strength to maintain and fulfill the God-given task of having dominion over the earth. Woman is no wimpy sidekick, neither is she simply an assistant. Now at this point, you might go, well, okay, so there it is. Men and women, equally valuable. Obviously, the Bible has a high view of women in the sense of what woman is, how, what, how, why God made her. Is there really any meaningful difference between men and women? Are there any meaningful distinctions still? Okay, yeah, counterpart, but but still, does, what, what, does this show that there's really anything that's of, of consequence as it relates to the differences of men and women? And, and there are. And I think this text shows us that. If we just ask a couple of insightful questions, or I don't even know if they're insightful. I think these are questions that just kind of pop off the page. First one we already kind of asked, did God make a mistake in making Adam alone? Why did he do it like that? And... If it was not good for man to be alone, and I think it's proper for us to understand that being alone is not in an emotional sense. It's in a functional sense that it's not good, the task of having dominion. Why is it that another man wouldn't su suffice? Why not just make another man to help Adam have dominion over the earth? Kathy Keller asked it this way. She said, what did God mean to accomplish by making us male and female? Why not just some unisex being? A hermaphrodite. Or uh, made with the ability to choose for ourselves whether and when to generate and incubate life. Why didn't he do He certainly could have done it like that. There are other things in creation that are asexual in terms of how they reproduce. Why not make man that way? Why is it that he made woman? I think the significance there, 
and that's, I do think, is common sense significance. It's that sexual identity and function are part of God's will for his image bearers. God made us different on purpose. And it's not just, it's not exclusively so that in romantic love there might be emotional fulfillment. It's connected to the glory of God and the task of stewarding his creation. It's a very significant thing that in God's act of creation, in order to bring glory to himself and in order for his creation to flourish, he made two distinct humans, male and female. And we ought not trivialize it like we are doing today. The second question that I think is right for us to ask, well, it's a series of questions, actually. Why did God make Adam first? Speak to Adam first. Give instructions to Adam and not Eve. Allowed Adam to name Eve and address Adam after he and Eve sinned together in chapter 3. It's very clear in Genesis that God treats men and women differently. Not unequally, but just differently. And that's an idea that I know many struggle with wrapping their head around because we have been indoctrinated in our time to think that difference means inequality. Is that true? Does it follow that because something is different, it is not equal in value or significance? Of course not. It's terrible, terrible reasoning to think that. Differences do not equal inequality. And the significance here, I think the primary significance that is shown in Genesis, and then this idea is maintained consistently all throughout Scripture. The primary difference between men and women in the creation account is that God treats Adam as the responsible party for the equal partnership of men and women. I'll say that again. The primary difference in the creation account is that God treats Adam, holds him morally responsible for the equal partnership of men and women. I mean, Eve is responsible for her own actions. And in Genesis 3, we see that, that because of what she did, there's a consequence for that. But the act itself, the, the fall of mankind, even though Eve did this or was part of it, Adam had a headship kind of responsibility. God said, what have you done to Adam? You are the responsible one. For this partnership. It's not that Eve's actions are not insignificant in any way. But in this equal partnership of two equally valuable people made in my image. You're the responsible party for good or for bad what happens here. This is the basis of the biblical understanding concerning the role of male headship. Ray Ortland offers a helpful definition of male headship because often it's, it's a biblical idea that has been weaponized by men to assert a kind of dominance over women that is improper. And so if you've been in abusive situations or in religious communities that use the idea of biblical headship to create a, a hierarchy in terms of significance and in getting your way, that's unbiblical. 
Biblical headship is, a, well, let me just read his, de- his definition. I think it's helpful. Ortland says, in the partnership of two spiritually equal, and I would also add not just spiritually, just from a, a, a value standpoint, equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. There is more we could certainly unpack on the topic of biblical headship. But that will have to be a conversation for another day. But I think what Genesis 2, 1, 2, and 3, what it shows us is that men and women are equally valuable, made in God's image. Both are charged with the task of having dominion over the earth. There is something complementary about our differences that are not a sign of greater value or worth on the other part. And in this meaningful calling, men and women are responsible for their actions, but there's one level more of accountability that are placed upon men in a marriage, and that is the responsibility to lead this partnership and this union in a way that brings honor and glory to God. Ephesians 5 gives us a little bit more of a glimpse of how men lead in this way, and they do it through sacrificial love. Not decreeing on high what should be done, but they love, Paul says in Ephesians 5, that they are to love their wives the way Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave up his right to be treated as God and became a servant, humbled himself, and died on the cross that we might be sanctified by his blood. In the same way, Paul says, husbands, this is how you lead and love your wives. You lay down your life for your wives. And it is a beautiful thing. When done in accordance with God's will and his plan, marriage is a beautiful thing. And headship is no threat to women. So in conclusion, let me just offer a couple of things for us to consider and perhaps do. Men and women are meaningfully different, share equal dignity, and have equal access to God, his spirit, our inheritance, and all the blessings that come from belonging to Christ. Therefore, let us do at least these four things. Let us understand that our gender And sexual identity is for the glory of God. It is not for us to do with whatever we please. So think about this. Prayerfully consider that. Because you are living in a time where out of one side of their mouth, society is saying to you, gender and sexuality, it does not matter. There's no meaning there. And out of the other side of their mouth, they're saying it is the most important thing. You should identify yourself accordingly. Gender and spirituality or sexuality are very meaningful, but they are not the primary fundamental source of your identity. And how you are made is done on purpose, and it is for the glory of God. So understand this. The reason, one of the reasons why we don't shy away here at Crosspoint from talking about culturally relevant and difficult issues, um, like we've done abortion, of course, we've talked about race, Uh, Here we're talking about things that would fall broadly under the LGBTQ spectrum. And the reason we do that is because they are gospel issues. A lot of times people will say, just preach the gospel. We are, this is a gospel issue. You cannot rebel 
against God in one of the most fundamental ways by denying who he made you to be, male or female, in his image. And think that there's no cost to that, that that is not sin, and you are living in rebellion against God. How can you, in other words, how can you say honestly that God is your Lord while reject his design and seek to replace it with one of your own? And it is clear that God's design for men and women is that they are different, they are complementary, and marriage is intended to be between a man and a woman. I don't know how you can reject that and still say, God is my Lord and I follow him. So it is a gospel issue. So think about this. And I welcome all of the conversations, heated or not, that come on the other side of this. The second thing we need to do is seek to empower women in the church in accordance with Scripture and God's design. This is built upon the reality that differences do not equal inequality and roles do not infer inferiority. They are part of God's design. However, often in the church, in the midst of this fight, the church tends to focus only on what women can't do. Instead of glory, honoring and empowering them to honor God, work and serve his kingdom in such a meaningful way. Third thing is to use our differences in love to support and lift each other up. We made this, I made this joke, or not a joke, but it is kind of a funny illustration a while, a little while ago, and if it's familiar, um, that, that's fine, but it's probably new for some of you. Men are stronger than women. It feels, you feel wrong saying that, right, in our culture. But it, men are stronger than women. It's simple. Now, not every man everywhere is stronger than every woman everywhere, but men are stronger than women. If all of the guys in this room decided, we're going to overpower you ladies, it's going to happen. We would win. Why should we not use our strength that way? Why should we not use our strength to coerce you and force you to do what we want? Why shouldn't we do that? Obviously, we shouldn't do that because you're made in God's image. And following the example of Jesus Christ, we use our strength in a sacrificial way to love you and serve you. Likewise, ladies, why should you not exploit your sexuality to your advantage and seek to gain control or leverage over men in this room or in your marriage that way? Why ought you not do that? Again, because men are made in the image of of God. And I'm not reducing men and women to strength and sexuality. Those are just two examples out of which I probably could have pulled, pulled many. But my point is, whenever you find the differences, and there are meaningful differences, do not exploit them for your gain, but use them in love to support one another. And lastly, I think we must be bold to teach our children that there is something special about being a boy. And there is something special about being a girl. Now, we must grow in knowledge. What does that mean? So we've got to up our game here in teaching at the church, and you've got to be bold to have the conversation. Because it's going to be very easy for us today to go along with the cultural moment 
and just say, Ned, what is a woman? I don't know, anything you want it to be. What does it mean to be a man? I don't know, anything you want it to be. If you're a man, can you be a woman? Sure, if you want. If you're a woman, can you be a man? Sure, if you want. It's going to be real easy for us just to go along with that. And so when Conrad asks me, or when Aaron asks me, Daddy, what does it mean to be a man? How do I use my differences for the glory of God? I can't say it doesn't matter. I don't know. We must teach faithfully these things. And so we must grow in knowledge. So think about these things. Prayerfully seek God's word to answer these meaningful questions. What is my gender and sexuality for? And how am I to use them for the glory of God? And let us all be charitable with those that disagree with us. Disagreements on this issue are not driven by bigotry or sexism. Now, perhaps they are. But be gracious and don't assume that the people that don't think like you, they must not think like you because they are the devil incarnate. There are reasonable ways to disagree. And let us do so in love and with grace as we seek to know what is true so that we can honor God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen? Josiah, would you come and lead us in a final song?